Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. If you look at a fighter, and even if the fighter is the best fighter ever, you know, Floyd Mayweather, who's 50 and O, you still get hit 50 times around. If you win, you still get hit 50 times around. My martial arts sensei used to say the mark of a champion is not how you punch, but how you take a punch. And I, I certainly have found that to be true. So it wasn't one huge crisis, but a lot of punches. They just said, I don't care. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I don't care. I'm going to do it and just keep doing it. No matter what happens, just keep doing it. My boss to be at HBO said to me, listen, you have this job here. You can come here, but you're going to be sitting in a cubicle for seven years. And if you go to that company restaurant, it might fail. But if it succeeds, you'll get to work on production right away. So I kept gambling like that, kept taking chance after chance after chance. And some paid off and some didn't, but I kept gambling and I kept focusing. So as I said, it, you think of the boxer, you win the fight, you still get hit 50 times around. It's the persistence thing. And it is a touch of the madness because there's times when you're losing money and everyone's telling you you're crazy. And you're like, nope, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Larry, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called A Touch of Madness. And when I saw what it was all about and the things that you have done with your career in terms of filmmaking as somebody who had aspirations of working in the entertainment industry, I thought to myself, yep, I definitely want to talk to this guy. Uh, but before we get into the book, I want to start by asking you, what was the very first job that you ever had and what did you learn from it and how did it end up shaping and influencing where you've ended up and what you're doing <laughs> in your life and career? Well, the first, the, the first job I ever had was when I was a little kid. Um, my best friend Richard and I were firecracker dealers. I mean, I'm talking like fourth grade um, in Boston. We used to sell firecrackers and then we graduated to high school and we started selling fake ID cards. Um, and, and I, and, and the, so I'm the fake ID theme card, here. Yeah, yeah. We sold the fake ID cards for 50 cents and they weren't selling. So we raised the price to $4 and we sold out. So it was my first great marketing lesson that people ascribe value by the price. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first job. 
And then I worked a se- and, and then I, I, I would just work a series of, of temp jobs whenever I needed money to go do something. We, we mowed lawns, we washed cars, we, uh, we do any, anything we could. So I, I worked at an ice cream place. I mean, we did everything like that that we, that, uh, we could. And I did a lot of that. But I think what I really learned from it all was what I learned from those fake ID cards. Perceived value is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it seems to me like this touch of madness was kind of inherent in you from the get-go. I mean, of all the things you could have chosen to do, firecrackers and fake IDs, two things that were basically illegal. So, you know, I, I don't think that the important thing is that you did something illegal, but more that you had that kind of audacity. Where Where does that come from? You know, I just... I was just always like that as a little kid. And I always used to get in trouble. And when I was um, in school, I went to a very small, like grammar school. I, it was a very small local school. And there was like um, two classes, the regular class and the small little advanced class. And I was in the advanced class, but I was always the bad kid in the advanced class. In other words, I would get all A's. And in those days, we would get A, B, C, D, E, F. And I would get an F in conduct. And that was my entire sort of, you know, under, you know, school career in high school and grad and um, in grammar school. So they couldn't really nail me too bad because I never did anything really bad and I got all A's. So it, no. it, I was just always like that. And I always, and I had incredibly supportive parents, you know, who knew I was no angel, mind you. But one time in our little school, in that little classroom, we got accused of doing something that we didn't do. And the principal of the whole school department came down and he said, I'll make a deal with you. If you all admit it and say you're sorry, then I'll... I'll, you, your guys are okay. And all the, the other 11 kids all said they'd do it. And I stood up and I said, no, we didn't do it. And they called my parents and it was a huge deal. And I heard my mother arguing on the phone with them. And then she said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You asked him for his opinion and he gave it to you. So I'm not going to punish him because you asked. So she, they were, even though they were, they, again, they had no illusions about my being a sweet little angel or anything. They were incredibly supportive of, um, of me and my brother, of, being whatever you want to be and going for it. And if you work hard, you can get whatever you want. But, yeah. but it was, that was always my personality from day one. I get thinking about it. I really thought about it. If you just asked, it was always mm-hmm. like that. Well, I mean, what's been the, the trajectory that has led you into the entertainment industry and eventually to writing this book? Because you and I both know that that is no easy path. And as, as much as we like to sell this sort of, you know, be anything, do anything, you know, have anything <laughs> narrative, um, there's also, you know, we have to add a touch of reality to it for people too. I only know this because I learned this the hard way when I got to business school. I realized I'd gone to business school at Pepperdine and within two weeks, I realized nobody hires MBAs to do creative work in the entertainment industry. I was like, okay, great. I'm too old to start at the mailroom in Willie Morris. <laughs> well, so when I was a little kid, my father took me to see a James Bond movie and my father always loved the movie business, but and he, was, he was like a writer on the side, but not like not professionally. He grew up, his parents were immigrants and he just, he was in World War II. He just didn't have that kind of opportunity. But I took me to see a James Bond movie. And when we left, I said, okay, there's two things. I want to be James Bond. And who's that guy who said, you know, produced by a Cubby Broccoli presentation? Well, who's that guy? And my father explained what a producer does. And I said, that's what I want to do. And no kidding. I used to just walk around and tell people at like age 11, I'm going to Hollywood to be a movie producer. I, I ran into my oldest friend in Israel recently. And he said, I can't believe that you, know, you used to say this when you were 10 and now you're doing it. I started planning then. And the way I planned it is in, in Boston where I was, I chose we were in that grammar school. My parents were wonderful, but didn't have any money. And um, there's a school in Boston called Boston Latin School, which is the oldest high school in the country. It, it Benjamin Franklin, 
It's like going to school in the 1860s. I mean, in one sense, it's terrible. But in those days, it had a really great reputation of getting kids into great colleges. And if you take it, if you do well in a test to get in, you can go for free. So since grammar school, I was like, I'm getting in that school. And then from that school, I'm going to get in a good college. And then that way I'll meet people. And that's the only way I'll get to Hollywood. And that's sort of exactly what happened. So it sounds easy. You're right. Well, you say it in hindsight. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I just, you make it sound easy. Yeah. But I mean, I just spent you literally since I was a little kid, I'm going to get a Latin school. I, I hated every minute of Boston Latin school, honestly. But it got me into Cornell and Cornell got me into Wharton. And I did every internship I could until one of those internships at, uh, at Wharton led to my first job. But it was a complete yeah. plan from day one. And it was a lot of work. You're right. It wasn't always easy. But I, I just was determined to do it. Well, talk to me about the hard parts, because for every story like yours that you hear about Hollywood, there's a dozen, probably a thousand that we don't, right? People have never made it. Because I feel like this is something I've been sort of realizing as I've been talking to people. And I had a guy yesterday who uh, had written a book about perfection that I was speaking to. And so much of this sort of narrative that we hear is ripe with survivor bias. So, and you know, you mentioned this wasn't exactly a smooth road. So talk to me about the, the parts that were horrible. The, the reality, like paint us the picture that we don't get to see because we see you now. We didn't see everything in between. Hey, you know, I think, you know, there were obviously I mean, stuff in my, in my personal life that went on during that time that was somehow challenging, but that didn't have anything to do with, with the work aspect of it. Um, I, I think it, it, it was just like, I, you know, I do a lot of martial arts because of I produce all the Mortal Kombat movies and, if you look at a fighter, and even if the fighter is the best fighter ever, you know, Floyd Mayweather, who was 50 and 0, you still get hit 50 times around. If you win, you still get hit 50 times around. And I don't think there was one catastrophic event. There were a lot of highs and lows and disappointments. I thought I got this. I didn't. Before I got my internship at HBO, which is what led me to my job, I didn't have it. And I was going to do some more accounting job at CBS. And and, you know, it, it was just a question of utter absolute persistence. And that was just a marathon. And that was just hard to constantly do it. I didn't have any money in those days. And I was always working like 19 jobs in college and going on scholarships to try and get it. But I just was so focused on doing it and just loved the idea of doing it so much and love movies so much. And I still love movies so much. It's, and it, and it's still, you know, if, if you get, now you're, now you're, as I said, you're, you're Mayweather and now you're on your 49th fight. The other guy doesn't hit you less hard because you had some success. So it, it's still a lot of that. It, it's just a constant feeling that this is the game. You're going to get hit and you got to understand it and you got to keep, you got to get up again. My martial arts sensei used to say the mark of a champion is not how you punch, but how you take a punch. And I, I certainly have found that to be true. So it wasn't one huge crisis, but a lot of punches. He just said, I don't care. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I don't care. I'm going to do it and just keep doing it. No matter what happens, just keep doing it. Yeah. And I also gambled a lot. I mean, when I, that internship at HBO was the summer between my two years at Wharton and I had essentially two job offers. One was to go work at HBO, where I, which I would have had a corporate job in the cubicle at HBO or to take a shot on the startup company started by a guy who had left HBO and taken some of the you know, rights with him to start a home video company in the mid eighties in Connecticut. I thought I'm going to work in Connecticut. I'm going to Hollywood. And I did go to work in Connecticut because my boss to be at HBO said to me, listen, you have this job here. You can come here. 
but you're going to be sitting in a cubicle for seven years. And if you go to that company restaurant, it might fail, but if it succeeds, you'll get to work on production right away. So I kept gambling like that. And then later when we talk about the touch of the madness, I, I, I gambled more. I still do it. I still kept taking chance after chance after chance. And some paid off and some didn't, but I kept gambling and I kept focusing. So as I said, it, it, think of the boxer. You win the fight, you still get hit 50 times around. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, so, you know, the two things come to mind for me when you mentioned this sort of persistence 
the first is an interview that I heard with Matt Damon. Uh, he was on Sam Jones' podcast off camera, and he was talking about the fact that he had no plan B. And he tells this really incredible <laughs> story about how, you know, the reason Goodwill Hunting actually got written was because those guys needed to create jobs for themselves. They, it, like, nobody was hiring them for anything. And he said, you know, most people don't realize at that point they had both been in the Screen Actors Guild for like 10 years. And that right. was sort of their breakout moment. And he said that he had no plan B. And, you know, to, to sort of, as a counter argument to that, we had Annie Duke recently who wrote a book called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, in your industry in particular, I mean, I know this cause I'm in the arts and the arts is literally a career where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. What is it that separates the person who persists and actually succeeds versus the one who does quit? And I, I mean, I feel like there are probably times when it does make sense to quit. You know, um, Talent's half the battle. It's really interesting because I go through this all the time now, not only in terms of myself, but in terms of new actors, new filmmakers, new writers. I can tell in two minutes, let's say it's an actor. I can tell in two minutes if they have talent, if they have charisma. I can't tell if they have the persistence. There's nothing you can do, but time will tell them that. And that is the determining factor. The most important factor, certainly in this business, I can't speak for others, is the fortitude and the persistence. And I don't care how talented you are like Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, it's right, it's 10 years. And there's, you know, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And when they become one, everyone goes, yeah, it was great. I came out to Hollywood and now I'm in Goodwill Hunt. But it's not like that. And what, what, that, that, that question is a great one. My first boss used to call it fire in the belly. What separates the people who have the fire in the belly and what separates the people who don't? I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's indefinable, but I think the people who have it, either it's just the way they're made up or, they just so clearly see the goal and see themselves in it and think, I have to get to that reality because nothing else will make me happy. And there's the, the reason there's no plan B is because of that. You know, I used to tell myself that, well, you know, I have an MBA from Warren, push comes to shove, I can always go work on Wall Street, but I would have been miserable. And, and I mean, I got job offers on Wall Street. I, I used to travel around in business school and it's just no way I would do something like that. It just wouldn't make me happy. And so I think that's what it is. I think when you look down that road, which is long, but you think, but any other path, even if I get it, I won't be happy. I think it's that. And most people don't want it. You know, I'm not, when I, I speak at film schools and I, I, I think I develop a harsh, I mean, I, I portray a harsh reality to a lot of the kids because I say to them, especially these days, in two years, 80% of you won't be in the movie business. And it's not because you're not talented. It's because you don't have the persistence. You have an easy life. You have a million options. You're wealthy parents. You don't need to do this. And most people don't. I like, for example, if I'm in a film school and I say to a kid, okay, what do you want to do when you graduate? And they say, I want to direct horror movies. I say, great. What horror movies do you like? And they say, oh, I don't watch horror movies, which happens a lot, by the way. Right away, you know that nine out of 10 times that kid's never going to wind up. No. So you either have it or you don't. And that is the determining factor. We meet so many people who are so talented, who don't have it. And I'm fascinated by your question because, you know, the 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 prettiest women aren't necessarily the, the most successful models. The best singers are not necessarily the most successful singers and on and on and on. It, it, you know, Taylor Swift is Taylor Swift, not only because she's talented, because she was writing songs when she was 11 and driving around and dropping them off at a record company. Mm-hmm. It, that persistence is everything. And without it, in the entertainment business, unless you just get lucky and win the lottery, you're not going to make it. Yeah. 
And it, it is the determining factor. It's the thing we most look for. Well, I think when I, the thing that I remember like verbatim from that Matt Damon conversation with Sam Jones was he told, he told Sam Jones, when I meet somebody who wants to be an actor, I try to talk them out of it. And he said, why? And he said, because if I can talk you out of this in one conversation, you're not made for this. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, he's right. I I do that too. He's exactly right. Why do you want to do this? You got other ideas. Even when people come to us as like outside investors in the business, like, you sure you want to do it? He's right. If you can talk someone out of it, you know what we do a lot with auditions if the, if the actor is new because you, know, you don't have a body of work on which to judge. We call them back three or four more times than we need to for their acting just to see if they'll do it. You know, if if after two times we say we need to see one more time, they don't want to drive to, you know, nice office in Santa Monica. It's not exactly health. We know they won't do it. We, we do that kind of stuff all the time. And Matt is right. You, you, you try and you you cajole and you push, and if they can be dissuaded, then they're not going to do it. And, you know, the process too, like even when you get on the movie, it's great. But, you know, sometimes it's a 16-hour day and it's really hot and you're tired and sweaty and the food's not good. You know, it, it's, a, it's a tough, it's a great job, but it, it's not all butterflies and rainbows. So that is the determining factor. And we search for that all the time, high and low. I would rather hire someone who has, you know, not so much raw talent, but incredible persistence than someone who has incredible talent and no persistence. Heart is more important than talent. One thing I wonder is how the internet has changed your business, internet and technology, because I mean, now everybody and their mother has the opportunity to plug in a microphone and do what I'm doing or start a YouTube channel. So how does that change the way that you both find talent and just how does it, it, it cause the, the landscape to change? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, during the pandemic, we, you know, we, we, we made three movies, which was good, but not as much as we would have wanted to over that time. And so we started thinking, what else can we do during this time? So we developed a lot of scripts and then we thought, you know, maybe we could find, you can't do in-person auditions, but maybe we could find some new talent because we like putting new talent in some of our movies over Instagram. And we started looking and, and we actually, um, found some people and, and one or two of whom we're actually going to cast. But the thing that was funny is I thought, wow, this is great. We can find people this way. People can put themselves on tape this way. Yet it oddly seems to have the opposite effect where the person who can put themselves on, you know, on, on Instagram or TikTok or whatever sort of starts thinking, well, this is pretty good. I don't really have to go and audition and have people say no to me because, you know, I, I, whatever, however I'm making my, from, from, you know, paid ads or, or, um, or other collaborations with people, I don't really have to. So in an odd way, I thought it is good. We are getting some people that way, but not as many as I thought, because a lot of people seem to top out at that level. They think this is enough. And, And so in, in one sense, you know, I look at that when people say, gee, it's so hard to get into the entertainment business today. It's always been. But I think what you just said, you can find your, you can start a TikTok channel. You can start a YouTube channel. Yet, if you say how many people have gone from that into movies or TV, it's shockingly low. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure why. The, my, my other theory is, you know, for years and years and years, the whole history of certainly the movie business, these movie stars were handled in a way that they were iconic and you can only go see them on the big screen. 
And, you know, the studio would say, okay, they'd release a picture of Lana Turner or Humphrey Bogart once a month when they wanted to, incredibly crafted. Now you see everybody picking their nose on Instagram 15 times a day. I'm not sure that that person becomes someone you've got to run to the movie theater and see. I mean, yeah. there are people with 200 million followers who are good actors or actresses, but they're not the biggest actors or actresses in town. And, and theoretically, they should be. So there has been, I think I'm right in saying this, no examples yet of someone came up via, you know, a social media or or the internet and from that became a movie star. Yeah. It's really interesting. Well, I, I think that, Part of that, in my mind, is because social media centers around metrics, whereas I think the people that you deal with are focused on mastery. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think it is interesting because if you look at social media and try and think, why is this person who's opening present or playing with a lizard, why are they so popular? But they are. But you're right, that isn't really mastery. It's sort of mass clicks or whatever you want to call it, but it's not mastery. I think that's a really good point. And again, yeah. it's still hard. You know, no one is saying to you when you sit in your living room and, and put yourself on TikTok every day, let do it again. The angle is wrong. You just do whatever you want. And, and it's great and good for you. But, and we, we do look. And as I said, we have found one or two people who we're now going to put in a movie. But, the, but not, I should say this. The people who we found are not, um, are not Instagram superstars. They're not yeah. people with millions of followers. They're people with 30,000 followers. They just happen to be really good and seem to be really, um, dedicated to it. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I had a self-published book that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And when I had the chance to do a book deal, I did it because I knew that doing a book with a publisher was going to be a different ballgame. It basically, you know, it taught me like what it's like to do this at the professional level. And it's really different. Did you, did you, um, I mean, are you, did you use social media yourself before you signed with a publisher? Did you, did, so, is that how you got well, no, no, actually, my social media presence is actually minuscule for, you know, how long we've been doing this. I'm not a big social media fan. I don't use it. I'm much more interested in focusing on producing content. Um, I, you know, because like, I feel like so often, like you look at somebody like my friend Ryan Holiday, right? I think that it's very easy to have mix up causation and correlation. And I'm like, Ryan's like massive following on social is a byproduct of the fact that he's done such exceptional work. It's not the other way around. But how did you get your book known when self-publishing? Oh, so I, well, that was, you know, just a, a stroke of like Glenn Beck happened to find it. And uh, oh. while he was browsing Amazon, I was on the Glenn Beck show. And then <laughs> two, and a, two years later, but keep in mind, but, you know, back to the idea of persistence for two years, it didn't lead to anything. So I just kept writing a thousand words a day, publishing articles every week. And I think two and a half, maybe two years after that, an editor at Penguin found something I wrote and reached out to me. See, persistence. Yeah. So one last thing before we get into the book. I mean, I think this will make kind of a, a nice segue into the book. You've been around a lot of very, very like famous people. And I think that there is this misperception that we have of what it is like to live in the spotlight uh, that is perpetuated in a lot of ways by things like social media. Um, so give me, give me the reality check of what these people's lives are actually like versus what we think they're like. Because what do we see? We see red carpets, fancy dresses, nice cars, amazing parties. I, in my experience, the the very famous people I've worked with, actors, directors, whatever, it's no coincidence. You meet them in 30, like Matt Damon, you just, I don't know Matt, but you, you meet them in 30 seconds and you go, I got it. The first time I ever met Arnold Schwarzenegger was in the beginning of T2. He had just come off another movie with um 
Smithsonian. He gave everyone a speech and I, I never actually met him before. We were just starting the project. And I looked at him and I thought, if this guy was American, he'd be president of the United States for one second. That was the, my first instinct. And as I mm-hmm. got to know him, none of it was a coincidence. And I know lots of other people like that. They, they, they command their careers. They know what they're doing. They call their agents three times a day. They say, how about this? How about that? They're unbelievably in control and orchestrating their own, their own career. So the notion that I always tell young actors is that some agent is going to then call you and you're going to simply sit at home munching, you know, Cheetos by the pool. And they're going to call and say, well, you know, yeah, the jet's coming tomorrow and here's the money. And hit. no, 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 no. They work, they plan, they focus, they focus, they focus. It, it's not, in my experience, it's never a coincidence. They do it. And that's the difference. People think it just happens and they just have these, these charms live. They do lead great lives, but they work their asses off. When, when we were, when we were doing T2, it was such, you know, it was the most expensive movie at the time. And I wanted, um, I wanted to do music video because MTV played music in those days. And if you got a video, you had a lot of promotion and Arnold didn't have to, it was not in his contract and it was a lot of work. And I asked him and he said, if you get the best band in the world, I'll do it. That's what he was like, the best and I'll do it. And I said, okay, what do you want? And he didn't know, but he, his brother-in-law was in the music business and he called his brother-in-law and said, who's the best band in the world? As I was saying, and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he looked at me, he said, Guns N' Roses. And I said, yeah. I didn't even know if you knew who they were. And I said, okay, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know Guns N' Roses, but we got it. And then he was incredible. The work he did, it, it was incredible. And that's what the good actors are like. Great actors also are the easiest to work with. They're not the divas. The ones who are not have not really made it that's where you got to be a little careful. But the great actors, they're fabulous in my experience. They're just great. Because yeah. they it's not a coincidence that they're there. And that's the difference that people don't understand. They are the arc, they are the CEO of a company whose product is them and they're good CEOs. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny that you you have that uh that's how you describe them because I remember Shah Rukh Khan was like super famous Indian actor. I'm sure you've probably heard of him. Uh, yeah, sure, of course. So he was he did an interview with Letterman and the thing that he said in that interview that stayed with me was he said, I am an employee of the myth of Shah Rukh Khan. And uh-huh. I'm like, wow, what a great way to separate yourself from like the character that the public has created of you. Yeah, see, um, uh, Cary Grant has this great quote where he says something like, it's great to be Cary Grant. Everyone wants to be Cary Grant. Hell, I like to be Cary Grant. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah. Well, the reason I mention that is because I wonder, you know, like how these people stay grounded when millions of people are clamoring for their attention. Um, and I mean, it's, it's really easy for people to attribute quality to, to them that they'll never live up to and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, you know, I was reading LeBron James' biography recently, and one of the things that struck me most uh, throughout that was in his entire career, he's kind of avoided the whole sort of lifestyle of the NBA. He's been with the same woman since he was in high school, um, and he's committed to, you know, basketball. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's enjoying his life, but it seems like he's been very intentional about that. And I'm wondering how you see that play out too with people who are really famous. You know, I don't know that I can speak to whether they stay grounded or not. I think grounded means, you know, different things. I, I'm a big fan of the sitcom 30 Rock where, you know, the Jack Donaghy character, which, you know, the CEO of NBC and the, and the sitcom would always say, well, let's go buy some milk at the store. What does milk cost? Like $95 a gallon? You had no sense of the reality of life. And, you know, they are incredibly well taken care of. Um, so grounded, certainly grounded in business, certainly good in a great work ethic, certainly good in movies. Are they grounded? I think that depends on the individual. And I think some people do lead that kind of life and are with the same woman or man since high school. But I don't know that they all are. I think maybe that's one place. Because <laughs> that is right. That is really hard. I mean, everyone is giving you whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a danger to that because if you surround yourself with too many yes men, you're going to make mistakes. And so the hard thing for them, I don't think is, you know, so much where do I shop? I think the hard thing is to be able to talk to them and, um, and, and, and tell them 
the, the truth. I remember another night, I'm just using Arnold's example because we talked about this. We were in the trailer, uh, Arnold's trailer on T2 and there were two other guys there. Um, and, 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 you know, one was a sort of marketing guy and one has passed away now. He's a visual effects guy and Arnold smoked cigars all the time. And he asked me if I wanted a cigar and I don't smoke. And I said, no. And he sort of made fun of me. And then I made fun of him back. And then he's fine. He's just screwing around. But when he asked them, they said, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And they both have asthma. I mean, bad. So they were sitting there with an asthma inhaler in one hand and a cigar in the other, taking a puff and then spritzing the asthma stuff into their mouth. So they didn't, be, rather than say no to Arnold about a cigar. And Arnold wouldn't do it. So I think when people are like that around you, I think it's hard to stay grounded. I think it's hard to get real answers from people. And there used to be a great lawyer in town named Jake Bloom. He's retired now. Jake handled everybody. He handled Arnold and, and, and Stallone and Bruce Willis. And he was the bluntest guy in the world. <laughs> he was so blunt. And he, I, I was, I had a, a, a friend who was a very famous actor, who was a client of his and we all had dinner once. And the friend had just finished the movie and we sat down and Jake said, your movie is so bad, it's not even going to video. I mean, he was so blunt with them, but they loved him for it. And and that that is the way to handle people like that, but it, it's hard. So the grounded question is a tough one. Yeah, I, I think it's more, they don't, you know, if no one tells you the truth ever, that's a tough way to, that's a, can be a very distortive way to go through life. I can imagine. Well, let's get into the book. Uh, you open this book by telling a story about Oliver Stone. So I, I want to start there so we can kind of frame it for our listeners and then talk about this sort of framework for what you call a touch of madness. A touch of the madness. So, right. so sure. So my, my great job that I got after all that planning after uh, grad school was head of production and acquisition, film acquisitions of a company called Vestron, which was a new independent studio focusing or riding the wave of the home video. So in those days, home video was the new thing, DVDs. And much like streaming today, it was a huge content gold rush. People needed content because video stores were opening. They had room for 25,000 movies. They didn't have any. So companies like Vestron sprang up to fill that gap. And so my first job out of school was to be head of production and deliver 80 movies a year, eight zero movies a year to the company. Buy them, make them, co-produce them. We don't care if you lose money, you're in big trouble, kid. Good luck. So we made, you know, genre fair, uh, horror movies, uh, rom-coms, uh, low-budget action movies, things like that. And they did well. They did really, really well. And it was great experience and it was fun. But then along came a script for a movie called Platoon, which was not the kind of movie we made. It was a serious drama about the Vietnam War and the impact it had on kids. Its tagline was, the first casualty of war is innocence. The people in the movie are great actors. And Oliver found them all. They are stars now, but they weren't stars then. Oliver had done a movie before that we financed called uh, Salvador, which was great, but it wasn't a hit. And I said to my boss, the chairman of the company, I want to make this movie. And he said, you're crazy. We don't make movies like this. And I fought and he said, okay, look, you're head of production. It's your decision. But if it fails, you're fired. What do you want to do? And I thought, well, I didn't get into the movie business to play it safe. And I had a strong instinct. So I took the shot. When I saw the movie the first time, the first final cut, I'm the only person to giggle his way through the first screening of Platoon, not because it's bad. But because I realized, oh my God, I'm not getting fired. It's good. And it was so good that it won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. A few months later, I ran into Oliver Stone in a bar in New York one night by coincidence. And we had a drink and he said, you know, kid, I always liked you. You have a touch of the madness. And I thought, a touch of the madness? A little bit of the, is he calling me crazy? Am I crazy? And then I thought, well, 
Oliver had a touch of the madness by insisting on a Vietnam movie to be made his way that had never been done before. My boss certainly had a touch of the madness by letting a 25-year-old kid run an 80-picture film slate with no prior experience. And I had a touch of the madness by betting that all on one movie. And then it hit me that a touch of the madness is exactly what you need to be in the movie business. As you said, maybe I've always had it. I never thought of it that way. It's exactly what you need in any business to be wildly creative. And and then I said, well, why is being wildly creative important? I mean, we did okay making, you know, mediocre action and horror movies. But if you keep to that, you know, the tide of the river of life will always pull you towards the middle, always. And the only way to swim against that is with innovation and creativity. And the only way to have innovation and creativity at its extreme is, I believe, to have a touch of the madness, meaning wild, unbridled creativity, that idea that you're thinking in the back of your mind, I don't know, I have a good accounting job, but I really want to start an independent bakery or whatever it is, the one that your parents will kill you if you do, that's the idea to go. And that's what you got to do because your audience, whether it's your movie audience or your customers, they want new and different. And if you get complacent, your competitors will will outrun you and, and eclipse you. So you need a touch of the madness. And that's been my touchstone uh, my entire career in the movie business. And I, I, I finally wrote the book because I, I've noticed, especially in the last few years, for whatever reason, I think people are more and more scared to be their most um, unbridled creative self. And, and I want to encourage them to do that. And that's why I wrote the book, because I just saw more and more and more people saying, we better not take a chance. We don't want to offend anyone. We shouldn't do this. I don't know. Maybe it's too much. I've seen it in a way more than I've ever seen it before. And I thought maybe I can do a little something to push a few people back to a touch of the madness. So that's why I wrote it. Well, I think that what I appreciate about the way that you structured this was it wasn't just sort of, you know, balls, like throw caution to the wind and do everything that comes to your mind. It was very thoughtful. So let's talk about the guidelines that you actually give us and explain them. So the first thing you talk about is finding the essence of your idea. So talk to me about what that means and and how it plays out. So when I, um, I, uh, wanted to make at one point, I was working with Jim Cameron and I wanted to make Mortal Kombat. And Mortal Kombat was a new video game in the days when video games were new. And it was very violent and got a lot of attention for that way. And no video game to movie adaptation at work. And everyone said to me, well, you're gonna, you can't do this. You're gonna, you're betting your career again. Why, you have a great job. What are you doing? And I, I left to make Mortal Kombat. And, but real thing is, I never thought I was making a movie from a video game. And I never think that way about an intellectual property. I think I'm making a movie from the essence of that video game. So if you think of a pyramid, you would think the video game, which is going to be adapted to a movie, is at the top of the pyramid. I would think, no, it's one rung down one side of the pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is the essence of that game. Why Why is it successful? Because the video game is one medium. And I always thought the essence of Mortal Kombat was empowerment. Martial arts really teaches you that if you're the, you know, you, if you do the right thing and study hard, you don't have to be the biggest kid on the block to win. So when I was trying to decide whether or not to make a movie and, and risk my career once again, I was wandering around an arcade in Westwood, California, an arcade is where they used to have video game machines that you play a quarter to play. And a little kid slapped a coin down and, ch- and said, I challenge you to Mortal Kombat. And he beat the hell out of me. And Mortal Kombat, if you don't know, when you lose, it makes you feel bad. And when you win, it makes you feel good. You win, Sub-Zero loses. And the kid felt great. He left feeling great. He beat an adult. And I thought, I'm making it. So once you say to yourself, okay, Mortal Kombat is about empowerment, in my opinion. And you're also, you know, wrapped in a visually wonderful packaging, what we did. 
you can then take that essence and go down all the sides of the period and make video games and TV shows and animated TV shows and movies, which is what we've done and continue to do because I think we got the essence right. Yeah, so I think you have to really understand your product, your brand, your movie by its essence. Why does this work for the character? I get asked all the time, so will there be made more video games into movies? There'll be made great essences into movies. You know, they used to think you couldn't make a book into a movie. It was crazy in the 1920s to think a book could be made into a movie, but it's, you're not making a book into a movie. You're making that essence. You're making that story. You're not making all the words F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote into a book when you're making Great Gatsby. You're making the essence of the story. And that's what I think is, is, is incredibly important. That's the first thing you got to do. Well, so basically what you're telling me is when, you know, books are made into movies that suck, the people who are producing them didn't think about the essence. I think that's true. Here's a great example. So when I was at Lightstorm, um, in those days when they had book manuscripts or, or scripts that were coming out, they were auctioned. There were so many people looking for, for, for material. <laughs> and at the same time, Jurassic Park, the, the manuscript to the book Jurassic Park and the manuscript um, to the book Bonfire of the Vanities, a story about Wall Street, w- was being sold. And they were both huge hit books. And... Um, and, you know, it was a list. Like we were second for Jurassic Park, but Spielberg took it. And Bonfire of the Vanities got sold too. But if you really look at those two projects, Jurassic Park is about a dinosaur park that goes wrong. Great cinema property. And Bonfire of the Vanities is about a miserable guy in Wall Street who's terribly um, selfish and conceited and ruins his life and the lives of those around him. Now, Bonfire of the Vanities is incredibly well written because the writer is a great mastery of language, but the essence of it is not an interesting story for a movie. And Jurassic Park, as you know, is huge, huge success, which is still made today. And Bonfire of the Vanities was a huge failure. It's not because the guy who wrote Bonfire of the Vanities was a worse writer. It's because the essence of it wasn't right for other properties. Yeah. So that's exactly what I'm telling you. Usually when the book sucks or something, the book to movie adaption sucks, it's because they miscalled it. Or they called it wrong. Well, okay. So I got to ask you, just out of morbid curiosity, what in the hell is the story, the the secret behind the the Fast and the Furious franchise? Like, I feel like it's like the never ending franchise. I don't know any movie series that's lasted that long. In my opinion, because it's just my opinion, I have nothing to do with it, but Fast and Furious, um, you know, there were a million car movies that failed. And why do car movies fail when cars are so popular around the world? Fast and Furious in the beginning, played the culture and the family of it. It's a, you, you can't watch a Fast and Furious movie where Vin Diesel doesn't say, you know, me familia. And he talks about a family and it's always family and we're a family. And in the beginning, it really was this, you know, family in this house in East LA and the drifter culture. It was the culture of it. It captured the culture. Now it's just these incredibly great extravaganzas, but they never forgot that family aspect. We're in this together. Um, and I, I think that was the essence that they got that no one else got. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, let's talk about the other piece, which is knowing your target customer audience, because I think this is where creatives in particular tend to have a lot of false positives. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I always say in the beginning of a movie or to my staff, who do you work for? You don't work for me, the director of the studio, you work for the audience. And the thing I can't stand the most is when someone says, well, I like, and I feel, no, 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 no. You have to say, I'm the guardian of the audience. So I like four. So when we were starting Dirty Dancing, which, you know, two minutes into the film business. And 
Um, the real geniuses behind Jury Duty, I was head of production, but the geniuses were not me. It was uh, a, a guy named Jimmy Einer, who's a music legend, who's still my partner in my company, and Michael Lloyd, who's also a music legend, who we still work with today as a, as a composer and music supervisor. And Jimmy said, well, let's, he suggested Jennifer Grey casting. And again, two minutes into the business. And I said, look, she's a great actress, but she's not the most famous actress right now. And she's not the most glamorous actress right now. And, and I, I was just throwing out the names of actresses who I thought were glamorous because I liked it. And he said, the fact that she's not that is the whole point, you idiot, because she's an every woman and every woman in the world will identify with her and say, well, if she can get Patrick Swayze, so can I. And I went, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and he was a hundred percent right. And had I prevailed and we casted some, you know, not some person who everyone didn't identify, Jennifer's is great quality that everyone identifies with her, the movie would have failed. He knew his audience incredibly well. And you've got to know your audience and you've got to always ask the question, what people especially here do, and especially now because of social media, because when they get fed, they say, oh no, people like this person. I say, why? Because your friend group likes it? Because you're a little, because you, know, you, you, you like it, so you get fed this on your feed? No. Yeah, you have to know your audience and really think that way and go out among them and go to what they do. You, you've got to really know where these, who these people are. And that's what you have to work for. And there's a huge, you're right. It's a huge miss when people don't do that. Hmm. So let's talk about the technology piece. You say, you know, let technology serve your idea, not the other way around. And you mentioned James Cameron. So I, you know, I, I figured he would be the perfect person to really use for this example because I remember the thing that always stayed with me from uh, Entourage when, you know, Cameron is in, in there for a cameo. Uh, one of the characters is like, oh, Cameron makes like one movie every 10 years and it becomes, you know, like a smash hit. And the funny thing is I've looked back and I'm like, wow, they're actually kind of spot on. He does only make one movie every 10 years. Um, <laughs> I read his biography and it was like, he's the only guy who doesn't work with agents. He's basically bucked the system. But from what I'm told, some of the reasons those movies take so long is because the technology hasn't caught up yet. Well, my, my point in the book is, is not, is not, I mean, Jim is great with technology and filmmaking, but it's not per se about Jim. It's about the notion that, you know, that are, are you using technology for you, for your goals? So and in, in filmmaking, it's to tell a story. So, and, and I, 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 example, I think is a little bit better of the point is, um, we also make theme park rides. One of the first theme park rides we made was for Star Trek and we wanted to use, to have a moving stereoscopic 3D camera, which didn't exist yet because stereoscopic cameras had always been stationed. So we sold the idea to Paramount. We sold the idea to Star Trek. You were going to walk inside a Borg cube, which is the bad guy's space camp, so to speak. And, and we sort of thought we knew how to do it, which is how I always think you should start technology in a movie. I sort of think, but I'm not sure. But it was really because we wanted to get this shot and then we sold it to Paramount and then we went about finding another company and, and working on a camera and getting it done and so forth, which we did. And it was an incredible success because we just used technology for a goal. And around the same time that, that kind of spurred a new movement in 3D everything. And a, a company came to see us, a big studio, and they said, we're starting a 3D network. Can you make stuff for us? We said, sure. What do you want? They said, we don't know. We said, well, who's your audience? They said, we don't know. And I said, why are you doing this? And they said, well, 3D is a big thing now, right? And they were up and gone in six months. Uh -huh. So I believe that in any business, technology has to be based on a story. I mean, the first time I read Terminator 2, I was like, how the hell did we do this? But Jim already knew. 
So it, it, it was using technology to tell a story versus saying, oh my God, here's a gizmo. I should invent something around it. Mm-hmm. I think you always have technology to get across your broader goal. Because, you know, the last thing you want in a movie is the audience to say, wow, that's really good technology. You don't want that. They're noticing the technology. They're not in in your movie. You yeah. want them to say, wow, what a great dinosaur. And then later, maybe they say, how did they do that? But they shouldn't be focused on that. It shouldn't, you shouldn't draw attention to it. You know, you don't notice your cell phone anymore. It's something you're used to. And mm-hmm. that's what I think is important. So yeah. I think technology is an, is an implementer or a tool for getting your creative idea across. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I've you know, talked to a lot of early podcasters and they start telling me about the, their plans to spend, you know, all this money and all this recording equipment. I was like, wait, but nobody listens to your show. Why would you do that? And Seth Godin in one of his audiobooks had this, uh, he was talking about Ira Glass and This American Life. And he said, you know, nobody who listens to This American Life ever says, did you hear how good the sound quality was on the most recent episode? Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. That's a great point. But you know what's interesting? If it wasn't as good, they would somehow subtly notice it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, I didn't use a proper recording mic for so long, but one of our listeners was so nice. They're like, I love your show. The sound quality sucks. I sent you a microphone. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Did you change that? Yeah, of course. I mean, because at that point, we we're 100 episodes in. At that point, I understood. But at the beginning, I was just like, I have an idea. I'm just going to keep going and, and see where it takes me. You know, sometimes too, like in the movie business, technology now um, makes people lazy. So for example, you know, you shoot on a digital camera with 8K, meaning a really, really, really ton of information on the on the chip from your shot and figure, well, I'll light it later, I'll fix it later, I'll do it later, which is a lazy way to do it. And it doesn't really work. I mean, it works to an extent, but it doesn't work as good as, as still taking care and caution to light it and do everything correctly. But it does make people lazy and sometimes makes everything worse because of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like we do these narrative episodes occasionally where we put together, you know, clips of different episodes and try to construct a story. And like, sure, could we do that with AI? Yeah, but we wouldn't be able to do it as well because the foundation just isn't solid. Right. I agree with that. And I, and I, I think that's a problem. And I, I think the audience somehow knows that. You know, I can't, we can't talk about this much, but where, where I was just in Israel and Jordan and we're prepping, I hope, actor strike today, but we're prepping up a, a, a huge movie on the Silk Road, which is all shot on location in these, in these great, unusual, exotic locations. And technically we could do the whole thing in a green room in Santa Monica. I just don't think it will be as good. I think the audience subtly will notice it. This technology is great for certain things, but other things, it's not the best way to get your story across. Yeah. Let's talk about this final guideline, which is once you've created your idea, never let go. Um, It's kind of an interesting one, right? Because like, what if your idea sucks? (laughs) Well, you know, look, I'll answer that question in two ways. So first of all, again, as you said earlier, you know, we have these kind of, you know, chats on podcasts. We tend to talk about all the successes. A lot of them, they don't always work. No one bats a thousand, but so what? But if you don't, do that, you're going to fail. If you do it, you'll hit it sometime. So the the best example of that is again, Dirty Dancing, you know, which we, which was a movie that another studio had started, stopped, we bought it out of there. It wasn't, it wasn't going well. That's when we brought in Jimmy and Michael. And the first, one of the first things Jimmy and Michael did is to look at some of the music that had already been done for Dirty Dancing and fix it. So the song Time of My Life, the big hit song, 
biggest hit song for the movie, was originally a high falsetto song. It was not the song you hear today. And Jimmy and Michael re-recorded it with, with you know, it was a deep, lower, slower song with a great voice, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers. And then they sent it out to everybody, the record company, director, managers, and everyone didn't like it. And they said, we need to do this change. We need to do that change. Would you please fix it and do another version? And Jimmy and Michael said, sure, sure, sure. Of course, we'll, we'll do it. No problem. Three weeks later, they sent them version two and with a note saying, listen, we sent this version to some radio stations. In those days, radio stations really helped you promote um, albums. And they like it. And everyone came back and said, thank you so much. Thank you for doing that. That's great. The radio stations like it. We're so happy now. We really appreciate your cooperation. So the question is, what great musical change did Jimmy and Michael do between version one and version two? And the answer is nothing. It didn't change yeah. a thing. Just name, they just changed the label to say version two. And the, and, and because, and they doubled down. They sent it to more people and they sent it to radio stations. At least the record companies and managers and stuff were still in the family, so to speak. Now they sent it out into the world. They doubled down. They didn't list anybody. They sent it to more people. And when other people read a note saying the radio stations liked it, they all loved it. But they knew what they had. And that song won uh, the, the, the Oscar for best song and the Grammy for best song that year. Had they listened, it wouldn't have. So you know, everyone tells you to listen to people more. I, mean, I think you should know your audience, but in general, I think you should listen less because great things aren't made by not taking chances. And yeah, will you fail spectacularly sometimes? Of course. But mm -hmm. I think better to fail spectacularly and succeed spectacularly than again, let that current of the river of life drag you to the middle because that's not how you make great art. That's not how you make great products. I don't think that's how you make great anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a story like, we, we, we were rebranding our show in 2014. And prior to this, it was a podcast for bloggers. And it was called Blogcast FM. And I remember putting out a Facebook status update saying, we're changing the name of the show. And I had all these people who are like, why are you changing the name? It's such a great name. And like, we would be, we wouldn't be here today if we had stuck with that name. Yeah. You see, like we completely ignored them. You know? Right. But you did it. You, you knew you had a good idea and you stuck. And that's really hard to stay with these ideas. I mean, you know, Spider-Man took 25 years to get to the screen. And 25 years. And now look at it. It's unbelievably successful for years and years and years. But it wasn't overnight. People just stuck to their guns. And I, I, I think that, again, it's the persistence thing. And it is a touch of the madness because there's times when you're losing money and everyone's telling you you're crazy. And you're like, nope, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And if you believe it, you've got to stick with it. Well, I think that makes a, a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's a combination of the two things I talked about. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's phenomenal drive with incredible creativity or charisma. Hmm. And, and I think that, I think that's it. I've met some really, you know, been fortunate some really extraordinary people and I like extreme. So I really, go all over the place to do that. And I, I, um, I'll give you an example. I, I, um, I made a movie about, it and I'm very friendly with a group of, um, of Buddhist monks. And I've also uh, done a lot of work with us special forces, uh, soldier. And I've come to believe that those two groups are incredibly similar. Now you will look at them and think, well, no, they're not because you know, Buddhist monks are all peace. And these guys are you know, not peace, not so peaceful, but in reality, they both have done extraordinary mind control because even the special forces, it's all mind control in pursuit of peace. They just have different tactics. 
But you see either of these people and you realize they're incredibly committed to what they believe in. My monk friends are, they don't just talk the talk, neither do my special forces friend. And they're, in, they have incredibly strong ideas. So, so that combination of those two extremes, your know, great idea, creative or, or otherwise, and the commitment, the, the pursuit of it, um, and the, and the fire in the belly is what I think makes people unforgettable. And that is what I call a touch of the madness. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything else? Oh, they can just go to a touchofthemadness.com and there's a website to pre-order the book if you want. It comes out in September. There's also lots about us and Threshold and what's coming up and our other projects. So a touchofthemadness.com. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.